Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. One more time, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, your word is lamp unto our feet and light unto our parts. We are receptive to the teaching of your word. We are illuminated by your light. And in your light, we have seen light. We don't just gaze at your light for fascination. But in your light, we see everything else. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name, we've prayed. Amen. Now, um, we are continuing our series titled The Colors of Grace. And by colors of grace, we are referring to metaphors in the Bible. Colors used as metaphors in the Bible to describe the spiritual condition of men. For instance, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I would make it white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. So you see the metaphors. Scarlet and crimson representing a sinful state. White as wool representing a blood-washed believer. And I just want to say this. What makes detergent adverts sell is that they promise to take away tough stains. You see them use tough stains very much when they're talking about it. Because when you go out, there are some stains you see on your clothes that don't bother you. You know that oh, just with the little wash. But there are some stains that come on you and you wonder if your cloth will ever be the same again. Have you ever experienced that before? You're just like, oh my God, engine oil. Has it ever happened to you that, I mean, you sent your cloth out to the dry cleaners because of the stains and when it came back, you were impressed? I said that to say this. You have to understand what God is saying. The level of the stain will increase the level of appreciation you have for the cleansing. He says, though your sins be red as scarlet. You wouldn't appreciate white as wool if you never really saw yourself red as scarlet. It is the level of the stain that increases your level of appreciation for the cleansing. Though your sin be red as scarlet, I will make it white as wool. Why am I saying this to you? Grace is only as valuable as you reckon your, your need of it. Let me take that again. Grace is only as valuable as you reckon your need of it. Many of us think we're not that bad and that great is, grace is just another creative option. If God never sends Jesus to die, if we were left to walk by our own holiness, you know, and by our own works, we could have still made heaven. That's what we think. And that's a terrible mindset. The Bible abominates that mindset, clearly telling us in the word, Romans chapter 3 from verse 23, it says, for all have sinned. How many? That includes the best of us. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, even our righteousness is as a filthy rag, meaning even when we try our best, 
we still come short. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you see, the etymology of the word sin, that's what it means. To miss the mark. It's just like in the normal school grading system. There is a grade, a mark that you pass and then you get an A. There's a mark you pass and you get your B. There's a mark you pass and you get C. And all of that. And sometimes, maybe the course is so difficult, all you want is a B. Oh, if I can get a B, I'll be so excited. Or sometimes, the course is so hard, you don't have enough time to prepare. God, if you can just give me a C. Then maybe that's happened to you before, you missed the mark. That's what sin is, missing the mark. The problem of religiosity is that we are arguing who missed the mark more. Even though we both missed the mark, guess what? According to WIAC qualifications, if you don't have a credit in maths and English, you're not going to get admitted. But guess what? 39 is F. Am I correct? 10 is also F. Religious people are arguing, my own F is more than your own. It doesn't matter. You, you, there's, there's this comparative Christianity where we try to point out ways we are better than others. And it doesn't matter. All have sinned. We still come short. Your F might be capital and my own small letter is still F anyway. It's still red. Has it ever happened to you? When your scores came back, you were expecting a particular grade and what you saw on the script was way lower and you were disappointed and angry. You know, when your scores are low, you say, they gave me, they gave me, they gave me 60. But when it is 90, you say, I scored 90. You know, and so you're angry. Ah, I wrote this thing well. Why, why did the lecturer give me this score? Then there is one brilliant person in class who then also receives a script and you saw that you did better than the person. That pacifies you. That's not that bad. And that's some of us, our subconscious approach to Christianity. The Bible tells us the story of two men in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, one was a Pharisee and he prayed thus, the Bible says, I thank you God that I'm not like this guy and mentioned all the wrong things that, God, that the guy does. Some of us are not audacious enough to mention all the wrong things people are doing, but you know, we show them with our eyes. When they walk in church, you are using your eyes to say, hmm, this prayer you are praying. <laughs> and stuff like that. And he's praying. Some of you don't pray this way, but you feel this way. God must really love me. Uh-uh, I've not missed my tithe once. And that's what the guy says. I give tithe of all I possess. I fast twice a week. There's a kind of confidence, self-confidence that you have when you assess yourself and you think, I'm not doing that bad. And the other guy was not even confident to lift his head to heaven. He bowed his head and smote his chest and said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Jesus said the other guy, the publican, left that place justified instead of the Pharisee. And Jesus said something very resounding. He says, for whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. 
and anyone who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's humility to reckon that the salvation that Christ offers in his, in his blood, you need. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It is them that have the kingdom of God. Say loud amen if you believe. So we must deal with that. That holier than thou attitude. But then there is another extreme. There's a crop of people, you know, who just want to do bad all by themselves. They just abominate any life of accountability. You see, when you listen to many people who say they don't believe in God, it's not as if they have come up with an actual logical conclusion. They are just scared of a life of accountability. And so when you hear some of them, it just slips out once in a while and you hear them say things like, why would God be obsessed about what I do with my life? You know, and that's always, it's accountability that scares them. Who makes all the rules and why must we follow them? Can't I just do what I feel? And I can't, I, I want to tell you that historically you can prove from the precedents and the examples of others that a people who cast off virtuous restraints will lead themselves to their own destruction. The problem about this is we don't like to hear it. We would like to express it ourselves. You know, when we tell you, Solomon, with all his money, look at the mistakes he made. We say, no, let us make money first. <laughs> you know, and all of that. I've been tempted to think that way before. Why is it rich people that are telling us there's more to life than money? Maybe you, you get. <laughs> Have you noticed? But really, a life without restraints. You must have restraints in your life. Things you cannot say. Things you cannot do. Boundaries you cannot cross. And if you don't have those restraints, you will self-destruct. And we want to talk about that briefly. In Genesis chapter 6, you know when we read Genesis chapter 6, we run straight to the story of Noah. But we are not careful enough to study how the, the build-up of the story. So the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 from verse 1, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, verse 2, that the sons of God, fallen angels, saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. So listen, there was such um, a sexual depravity in this community, no boundaries. So people were getting married. See, any people in history that have weak marital values, everything will fall apart when you have weak marital values. And I want to tell you, we're coming to that time again. And so, what happened next? Verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet the days shall be 120. Now, it just looked like it was a downward spiral from there. 
Mankind became so wicked and many people don't see the connection. We go to Genesis chapter 6 and we run straight to the flood. But there was a build up to that. Something happened. Think about it. How come Noah and his family were the only righteous people on earth? There has never been a time in history where that happened. That you can only count eight people under one roof following God. What happened? The New Testament called him a preacher of righteousness. All the while he was preaching, um, all the while he was building the ark, which historians say was about 60 years, there was an opportunity for people to repent. And in 60 years, no convert. What happened? It all started by loose views on marriage. And so, this... Fallen angels took wives. They gave birth to giants. Giants, everywhere you saw giants in the Bible, it was always a threat to true humanity. Isn't that true? Trying to subjugate humans and all of that. Let me tell you this categorically. If there was no flood, mankind would still have ended. Men would have killed themselves. The giants would have wiped off all the true human races. Because that's how normal human survival works. It's survival of the fittest, you know. It's survival of the fittest. So the strong will always subjugate the weak. And in case no one told you, the flood was not the destruction of mankind, but the preservation of mankind. Because Noah and his family were the only true human race left. So, after the flood, Noah takes out an offering, a sacrifice. He slaughters it. God smells a sweet-smelling savour. And then he puts a sign in the sky. I want to read that to you quickly. Don't forget, we're talking colors of grace, right? We want to talk about another color or a set of colors now. Chapter 9 of Genesis from verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, I will remember the covenant which is between me and you and every living creature. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So when we're looking at the colors of grace, we must consider the rainbow. a symbol of grace. Waters will never go over the earth to destroy the earth. And that's powerful. When we see the rainbow, what do we see? We see, we must remember man's moral extremes. At some point in history, we must remember the consequences of those extremes, especially sexual extremes. And then we must see God's grave intervention in both mercy and justice. Because in the flood, he was preserving mankind and in the flood, he was judging everyone else. So the rainbow must remind us we can't go on with this do bad all by yourself mentality. We must have restraints. 
and everything that seeks to pervert God's idea of sexual intimacy, we must abominate it. So the broad scale of applications in our day will be pornography, would be sex toys. Be, listen, how do I know all these things are wrong? It's very simple. Because when Paul was talking about it in Romans chapter 1, he says they neglected the normal use of a woman. So everything that you do, neglecting the normal use of a sexual partner as God designed it, is wrong. Pornography, sex toys, all those things give you, we like the pleasure without the responsibility. Because you don't have to be a good husband to an image on the screen. We like, we like the pleasure without the responsibility. We like the pleasure without the intimacy. And God abominates that. There is also a trend that is raising now. Have you noticed the only principle of marriage in this culture now is money? You might not have seen it that way, but let me spell it out to you. It looks like people only believe in marriage until they have money. When people out there who have money are talking, you see, you notice something. The ladies who have money see no need to marry. And then the guys who have money see no need to have one. So they say, why, can't, why would I you know, just commit myself to one person? That's the language. And it's all money that is exposing our true proclivities and propensities. And the rainbow reminds us not just of the mercy of God, but of the justice of God. Because make no mistake, the Bible tells us, 1 Peter 2, 13, even if God has not has said he will never destroy the earth by water, this earth one day will be destroyed by fire. So there are still consequences. And then another thing we want to talk about, which comes under the same WhatsApp group, ironically, has the very rainbow as its symbol is homosexuality. But we're going to touch on that, but, you know, there's a tendency church people have. You already have that comparative religiosity I talked about. So when I, talk, when I say I want to talk about homosexuality, you feel, you feel vindicated as if you also don't have sexual things you are battling. So it's all... The same roots, different expression. You're not better because you seem different. And before we talk about that, there is something more fundamental we must address. I don't have time. I'm going to run through this and we'll do it as fast as possible. I want to do a scanty commentary of 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul wants to teach on overcoming temptation. But he starts in the most unassuming way. He starts by talking about court cases. And you're wondering, what's he talking about? But this is one of the most profound approaches. 
especially as it pertains to what is happening in our day. He says in verse 1 and verse 2, how dare you take each other to court? Let me read from the New King James Version. Dare any of you have matters against another go to the law before unrighteous and not before saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now, this is, this is, this is, this is the flow of thought. God wants us to understand that his wisdom in his gospel is superior to any wisdom known to man. And that by design, even if it's very difficult for you to imagine, the church is meant to judge angels and judge the world. And now God's thinking is, if you're going to have that kind of wisdom and spiritual faculty to judge angels, is in our dispute of 100K investment in business or 2 million investment in business that you cannot solve, sit down, talk about it. Now, that's very difficult to apply. I'm telling you honestly, if you want to do business with a fellow Christian, you best involve a lawyer. In maybe compromise. It must be a Christian lawyer, but involve a lawyer. Because these instructions only apply in an environment where at least people are submitted to the word. If I cannot tell you based on the word, you are wrong, and this is what you must do. And then, there is no accountability. Sadly so. But it doesn't change the fact that God's, that's God's design. We ought to have this kind of PR mindset that even instead of going to unbelievers to, you know, expose family matters to believers are having a, a dispute, he says, instead, it's better to suffer yourself to be defrauded. He said, take the money. That's God's design. And you say, what does this have to do with sexual temptation? I'll tell you, look at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful to me. This is the bane of the legal constructs. Because there are some things that are lawful and are legal but are not appropriate. Do you understand that? Look at the message translation says, just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it is spiritually appropriate. So how does this apply to sexual sins? Just because you live in a country where it is legal to make some sexual decisions or marriage decisions does not make it right. And this is what you need to know. Before you approach the subject of temptation from a Bible standpoint, you must first embrace from the depth of your mind and depth of your heart, the wisdom of God. If you accommodate the notion, even in one corner of your mind, that God is a little extreme and is not in touch with the times, you're already vulnerable. Because sometimes the law of a land will accommodate some things that the spirit realm abominates. Please, are you listening to me? And I know that some people 
have tried to preach a sermon on this and have made a mess of this. So there are two extremes. There are people who teach the truth without love. And then there are people who teach love without truth. Love without truth is not love. But I want to start with the first. You know, some people, the way, uh, uh, because you seem different, don't forget the picture. People were about to kill a woman because she committed adultery in the Bible. They were ready to stone her to death. And Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and went away. So there is something about us that makes us less conscious of the magnitude of our own sins. I might not have committed the type of sin you commit. So maybe, in, for instance, in Africa, homosexuality is a big abom abomination culturally. But polygamy, uh, In America, homosexuality uh, is not bad. Polygamy, they are against it. So there is something about us. We are just responding to cultural preferences. Not to the word of God. And so because we hate adultery, I am ready to stone someone who did it. Meanwhile, I have stuff that I'm struggling with. It's just that I was not caught. This is what happens all the time. And so you have cases where, you know, I heard a story, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching story of this guy who came to his pastor to say, this is what I'm struggling with. I have same-sex attraction. Oh my God. The next service, the pastor preached this fire and brimstone service sermon on holiness and said, there is someone in this church so it was a midweek service, so the guy was not around. He just noticed on Sunday, nobody wanted to sit near him. It was so bad. Hallelujah. So it is true, homosexuality is a sin. You know what else is a sin? Homophobia. It's a sin. To see anybody outside of the provision of God for their salvation. You, you don't even give them a chance. You don't even understand what they're going through. You don't see. I'll say this to you. I got a call from someone I know loves the Lord. Sometimes we think that people who are having these issues, are just people who just want to enjoy life and don't really care about God. Mm -mm. This person, I can put, I know. Just like Paul was saying about the Jews, I bear record that they have a zeal for God. This is someone who loves the Lord, loves his word. And one day she calls me crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, Pastor, I have never been attracted to a man in my life. I've tried to suppress it. I even have a boyfriend. But the moment the guy started mentioning marriage and plans, I had panic attacks. She said she almost fainted on the road. 
She was having breathing difficulties. It was that bad. She was crying. And you could tell if she had a kill switch on her that she could just press and then all the urges stop. She would have pressed it. So, listen, we must, we must be a brilliant church. We must know the word so that we can truly communicate the love of Christ to the world. Are you getting what I'm saying? Not from a holier-than-thou mindset. That will not cut it. That will give Jesus, you know, a wrong image that is totally inconsistent with his nature. But then there's another extreme. Especially, and, and that extreme sadly is justified by some of the wrong experiences that people have had with church. And they go to the other extreme and say, love is love. But guess what? Truth and love are meant to go hand in hand. The Bible says to teach the truth in love. So love must never be at the expense of truth. You know what? Paul was describing love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So I can love a sinner, but never come to a point where for love's sake, I begin to act as if the things that they're doing, you know, are okay. And that's not intolerance. Intolerance, actually, the concept of tolerance is, I don't agree. You have to give me, if you think I have to agree with what you are doing to accept you. That's not tolerance. We must be able to disagree and yet I accept you. Praise the Lord. So we must have a firm understanding of this. So what, how are we to view this when someone says, I felt this way all my life? Guess what? That's what the gospel is about. Listen, in case no one has explained it to you properly, the natural man is broken. And you discovering that you were born with particular propensities still doesn't make those propensities legitimate. Guess what? Some of us were born liars. <laughs> we have been lying from our mother's womb. We were born thieves. Have you seen a child lie or steal and you're wondering, some of you, you don't have to think of another child, just think of you. One day, I thought about what I did as a child, and it broke my heart. This was many years after. That period, my family was going through a financial crisis. But I used to go to school with this boy named Femi. Femi was from a very rich home. So when Femi is going to school, we're going together. We'll branch at one Malam's place, and Femi will buy hobnobs. Listen, we were in primary two. Hobnobs. You will buy hobnobs and you will buy orange juice, the big one. So you can imagine how much his pocket money was then. And every day I was saying that, you know, 
And one day I said, I must buy my own. And I was never that type of child. So my parents didn't use to hide money, you know. And there was one money, about the only money we had that particular day, and I took it. And my mom, you know what broke my heart? My mom asked me only once because she didn't expect I would do such a thing. So I'm looking for this money. Did you take it? I said, no. She said, okay. Ah. So as, as an adult, years later, I remember that, ah. You know. <laughs> Listen. The Bible said by one man's sin, one man, by one man's disobedience, sin entered the world and death by sin. So even if we were not born sinners, we were born with the propensity to sin. So if someone says, since I was born, I've had these tendencies, it still doesn't make it legitimate. Just the same way, if you have desired to steal from childhood, it doesn't make it right. And if you have desired to lie since you were a child, it doesn't make it right. We are all broken in our normal sinful nature, all broken. And that's the essence of the gospel. That's where Christ comes in. At some point, we must agree that we can't judge by how we feel. We can't make our feelings legitimate. There has to be a standard above us. Otherwise, the way we are going, other people will come. The pedophile too say, to say, since I was a child, I've only liked children. And how then do you separate it? It's feeling too. You say, I am genuinely attracted to children. I'm not attracted to adults. How do you separate that? There must be a standard above our feelings. I'm not admitting it's easy at all. Just the same way some of you have real struggles with pornography. So the fact that it's difficult does not mean you should be left alone. From a biblical and logical standpoint, this is the proper perspective. Another thing that has made people, you know, think there is no way out of this than to allow, just allow people to do what they want to do is this cultural and religious pressure that you must get married. So, so, you see, I've never been attracted to the opposite sex. So what? Who said you must? If, if you're not attracted to someone, don't marry. Listen, the Bible <laughs> said it is not good for man to be alone. He didn't say it's not good for man to be single. There are two different things. Someone put it this way. Just this, it would be weird for someone to just stay on an island all by himself. That's not the will of God. But he wasn't. So when God was talking about Adam, he was talking about populating humanity. I want more humans. He didn't say every man must be married. In 1 Corinthians 7, he even made an argument for singlehood. He says a single person doesn't really have to bother about, you know, 
all you can do is just pursue pleasing God and doing ministry and being a blessing. Hallelujah. And as I begin to round off, I want to help you see something. I want to help you see that the ark of Noah was a picture of salvation. I'm not making it up. The Bible does tell us. And I will show you a couple of texts, as many as I can, you know, with the limited time that I have. there will be a coming judgment on all humanity but a group of people will be safe despite what is happening to all of humanity a group of people will be safe in the ark the ark is salvation and so we'll be, ex we'll be ex exempt from all the destruction that is happening around and there are many Things that God did symbolically to help us see that first and foremost the ark had only one door. <laughs> I'm sure you know the meaning of that. It's only one access to this salvation. Only one ark. And it has only one door. And then something simple but profound. The Bible tells us that God shut the door of the ark himself. Telling us that salvation is not by human efforts, by the, but by the work of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that none of yourselves is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then the waters of judgment are also symbolic. So Isaiah does a good job preaching. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, I, give, I made a mistake. I said 1 Peter 2.13 earlier when I was talking about the earth destroyed by fire. It's actually 2 Peter 3.10. So you can correct that. I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 7. Isaiah is prophesying about Christ. His redemptive work. And then the peace and the ransom that that will birth for us. He started from chapter 53, where he said, all we like sheep have gone astray, and God has placed the iniquity of us all on him. He says, for he was bruised for our iniquity. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then in chapter 54, we're going to touch more on this next week. You're going to be so blessed. In verse 7, it says, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercy I will gather you. With a little rod I hid my face for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn not to be angry with you or to rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed. 
but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. Say loud, amen, if you believe. So the Bible says, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now, you're a believer. You still have the temptation for pornography. You still have temptation to be with someone who is not your wife, who is not your husband. And yes, you stand by faith in what Christ has done. You are overcoming those temptations, but the temptations does not in any way mean that you are not saved. Do you understand that? And that's why when it comes to homosexuality, we must also separate the temptation from the action. Yes, you have the temptation. You don't have to act on it. And here is what the church is not ready to hear, but it's true. The same way you are exercising dominion over temptation, but once in a while, you still fall. And when you fall, you say, Father, this breaks my heart because this is incon inconsistent with my nature. I put this aside from today. For that person whose sins you believed still fell into that sin of homosexuality, it applies. It app Listen, there is something about us that thinks grace only applies to us. And throughout the Bible, there are examples of people who sin different. Samson had a problem with women, never had a problem with money. Judas had a problem with money, never had a problem with women. And guess what? All have sinned, come short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by grace, by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And no matter the temptations that you face, Christ is still the answer. And he says, it shall be as the waters of Noah to me. The rainbow doesn't just cast our mind back to Noah. It casts our mind to Christ. Because that's God's actual covenant of peace with the world. When Jesus was born, angels cried from the sky, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. That's your peace. It says through him, we have access into this grace wherein we stand. So the reality is the best of us is not good enough. I might never have had same-sex temptation before. It doesn't in any way mean I don't have my own struggles. And all of us have the, the responsibility to exercise our dominion. The Bible says, If you then be risen where Christ seek those things which are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God, set your affections on things above. And God has the audacity to tell you that the old man is dead. You say, ah, with all the temptations I face, the old man is dead. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. He says, for you are dead. And your life is hidden Christ in God. Col Colossians chapter 3, from verse 1 to 4. Now, if I'm dead, why do I still feel the way I feel? In Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says, mortify therefore. And you're like, is the old man dead or I should deaden it? Is it mortified or I should mortify it? But you see, the word mortify is the word from which we have mortician in our day. And in the mortuary, there are morticians. And the mortician has the responsibility to make sure 
that dead bodies act dead. Are you listening to me? And so even if the old man is dead, sometimes it acts out of character. Like that one time you were trying to slaughter a live chicken and even though his, his head had been cut off, when you poured water, it still stood up. And it's hard to convince a child the chicken is dead because the chicken is on his feet and running up and down the kitchen, but it is without his head. So what you are, are you supposed to do? As a mortician, you carry that chicken, put it down, pour hot water. <laughs> you are dead, chicken, stay dead. And that's what to do with the old man. That's what to do with all those wrong propensities. I'm a new man in Christ. As surely as Christ was buried, I was buried with him. As surely as Christ was raised, I was raised with him. So I walk in the newness of life. I walk in the newness of life. I have all these feelings, but I am not a feeling. I'm a man in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. He has taken away the stony heart out of my flesh and given me a heart of flesh. I can do his will. And I trust him. Hallelujah. This is how we fight our battles. On account of the resurrection of Christ, sin is no longer irresistible. And our greatest motivation for doing righteously is this. It says, as Christ was raised up, we should walk in the newness of life. Walking in the newness of life proves the resurrection of Christ. Because it is only on account of the resurrection that new life is possible. So you exercise dominion over sin, proving that Christ is raised by your sanctification. Hallelujah. Sin has lost its home. Yeah. Death no longer lives. Oh, Christ is. Sing it from your heart and make your boast. Say hallelujah. listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.